Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Our guests are going to engage with me and with each other for an hour, and then we'll have half an hour for questions from the audience, including students who are watching remotely from the George H.W. Bush School at Texas A&M University. So let me introduce two people who probably don't need an introduction. James Carville uh, is the legend. He's a colleague and old friend with whom I worked back in the day. He is truly a political icon. He was the architect of Bill Clinton's 1992 triumph and a driving force in other successful center-left campaigns here and around the world. He's frequent and incisive, acerbic, and often funny as he comments on television. Reince Priebus is the former and longtime chair of the Republican National Committee. He was also the first White House chief of staff for President Donald J. Trump. Earlier, as state party chair in Wisconsin, he built a Republican bastion that lasted for nearly a decade. Given the circumstances, however, I can't say I ever worked with him. Uh, (laughs) But I can say that I think of him as a friend, and we have been on stage together before. He is smart and thoughtful about the American politics in which he has played such a large part. So let me start with this. Leading up to this election, there was talk about what might happen afterwards. But we haven't seen riots or candidates refusing to accept outcomes. In fact, let's listen to what historian John Meacham said the day after the election. American said, I actually want a constitutional republic where we argue about differences peaceably. We don't encourage political violence. We understand that democracies are about giving and taking, and it's harder to give than to take. Our natural instinct is to take. And I think more than half the country made a decision that they would rather have a constitutional republic where you may not get everything you want on policy this afternoon, but you want to preserve a system that has delivered more good than ill. So how do each of you assess the state of our democracy? And what do the midterm results and the near record turnout tell us about our democratic future? James, you want to go first? Oh, well, uh, thank you, Bob. And I, just, I love being on campus. You know, I, I really love college. The best four years of my life was spent as a sophomore at LSU. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I, I, I just got to do that. I would be remiss. Bob Trump and I go back forever. I've traveled with Mary and I have traveled with he and O.C. He's just one of the people that I just hold in such staggeringly high regard. And his knowledge base is so much broader than politics, you, you can't imagine it. So he and his wife, are, I had a pleasure having dinner with him last night. And I can't tell you how lucky y'all are uh, to have him. I also want to plug Rince's kid, Jack, <laughs> is applying to SC. I just want to tell y'all, if you take him, he will double the size of the college Republicans. So they have to, if you want to bring some common ground, you can have two college Republicans. He'd be proud of you making a pitch. I'll, for I'll make a, a bipartisan pitch. I'll right? make a pitch, but you know, I, Bob, I think you you got a little stroke around this joint. Maybe you can uh, oh, do as I do every now and then, make a phone call to the dean of the medical school or something. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I'm going to be a little optimistic here. Uh, I think that these losing politicians saw the election returns and they said, shit, this is not popular. I better not do that. I, I, I mean, we, so you had maybe Carrie Lake, but it was just not election deniers. I mean, people, politicians kind of like, gee, we went down that road and that it, it was an election that we couldn't lose that we tied. And so I, I actually going to give the American people some credit here. Now, they weighed in and they said, well, we'll like this. And I think uh, John was right. And I think this is one of these rare instances that we seldom see where, where the people actually ran the show. And the politicians actually had to pay attention to them. But uh, maybe I'm just an optimist. Maybe I want to believe good things about people. But I see this like change in behavior. And I think it's being driven by the public. And so hats off to the public. Ryan, do you, do, yeah. do, do uh, you agree, by the way, that election denialism was repudiated in these midterms well, and man, that we're probably not going to see much of it? Certainly the people who you know, didn't respect the opinions of the courts didn't do so well, right? <laughs> um, let me just tell you my positives, at least as, as I see them. There weren't a lot for the Republicans, number one. But there was, um, I think, a feeling that we're all sort of just tired of the fighting. I think we're all kind of tired of hating each other. And I was getting that sense before Tuesday, being on the buses and the RVs, even with a lot of our folks. And I think there was that sense that we've got to come together as a country. Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. I mean, it can't be possible that every single Senate race in America is a contest between a left-wing anti-American liberal or a right-wing fascist MAGA extremist. I mean, it can't be, right? I mean, it could be that we've got two people running who love America. They don't agree with each other a lot. And maybe that's the way we need to start looking at our politics. The other thing I thought... Aside from, I think, some of the wedge issues that I think the Democrats did, they throttled us with it. I mean, they throttled us in, 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 in university towns and places like Madison, Wisconsin, with abortion and other issues. I mean, they did bring out the vote in a way that I had not seen. And I, I'd, I mean, I know every square inch of Wisconsin. I've never seen a wedge issue like that played out in such a way that no one saw it coming. Even the Democrat pundits didn't see it coming. They were on Monday criticizing the Democrats for talking about abortion and J6. Well, what were the issues? Remember? Inflation, crime, gas, groceries, right? But guess what? That wasn't what ended up carrying the day. Last thing. What I also saw was that I think that at least in this election, that the American people have sort of glazed over the vitriol between the two parties. In other words, yes, the country is clearly, if you ask the average American, it's a 75 to 80% wrong track. Biden's approval rating's at 41%. But the American people did something funny. They said, yeah, we know that about Biden. We know what you all say about Biden. But you all say that stuff about each other so much that we're, we're not listening to that anymore. And I'm not going to blame my senator 
or my governor for what is going on up here between the parties. So I think some of that stuff's going on. All that being said is that I generally agree that the country first is and, and, and putting our, our country before party is something that I think we can all agree on together, especially we're talking about common ground. Last thing, I want to thank Bob, USC, and Common Ground for having us. It's an honor to be here on a beautiful campus with a lot of great people, so thank you. Let, so, let us cheer it in. <laughs> so, so do either of you think that democracy itself was on the ballot in 2022, and why or why not? Well, so I was teaching at Tulane. It, it get, understand something about democracy. And so this was during the, the Arab Spring. And, yeah, people they didn't turn out to be not much. And I said, look, if I could get, go to Egypt, get a job working on a campaign, how many of you would come with me? 80%. I said, okay, so we're going to have a democracy. Where are the polling places going to be? Who's going to work the polls? What are going to be the campaign finance rules? Are we going to have a parliamentary democracy? Are we going to have a constitutional democracy, we have a House, a Senate, a Parliament. Uh, how, how, if you run for Parliament, you're going to have districts, you're going to have a slate. If there's a dispute, who decides the dispute? Right? Who decides who gets how much time on TV? Bob and I work around the world. It's great. And by the way, to have a democracy, it's not the first election that's critical. It's the second. It's the second election that determines the fate of the democracy. So... It's, it's a very difficult, complicated, inelegant form of government. It has many different purposes. So I live in a democracy when 18% of the United States elects 52 senators. Think about that. 18% of the country elects 52 senators. And that could change. All right? Forget about it. So, uh, and I don't know what, what a perfect democracy looks like, but whatever we have, we had it for a long time. And it's, it's, it's worth keeping. And again, when people, in, what, what I think people, I, I, I'm going to go back and actually as I continue to think about it, I think the American people conducted an intervention. All right? I really do. And, and really let's do. tell you this and Bob will tell you this. This is an election that the Democrats should have just done awful in. Uh, I mean, by any historical standard, by anything that you want to look at, I mean, if a tie is kissing your sister, that's the best sister kiss I ever had in my life. <laughs> yes, but when I, and if I was telling any young person in, that wanted to be in politics, that was in college, if I could recommend one course, it would be comparative government. It really illuminates you in a lot of ways. And I, I can't tell you how much I was, it, it impressed me. And it is, by the way, we worked in Latin America, worked in Israel, and you, when you use the word democracy, you, 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 there's a lot of different examples of democracy, right? And it's very hard. It's very complex. It requires building institutions over a long period of time. Yeah, I can't tell you what a complicated subject this is, so I've yeah, tried is. the best that I can. Yeah. So let me build on that, Reince, and ask you, are there steps we can and should take to shore up confidence in our democracy? I mean, it takes a long time to count ballots, for example. And what about passing the Electoral College Reform Act during the lame duck session of Congress? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, I don't think it should take a week to count ballots, but I also think that there's already been 
examples of states that do all-in mail voting, and they do it right. I mean, go look at Utah. Go look at Colorado. Go look at Oregon. We've reached the point where for Republicans, it's time to stop complaining about mail-in voting and just get better at it and get off your rear end and realize that, you know, it's election month, not election day. But I also think that elected officials, and perhaps you say a solution would be, you know, a bipartisan group of attorney generals and governors that get together and say, we're going to address this voting system issue. We're going to look at the states that do it right, you know, and we're going to copy it. But, you know, I want to touch on, if you don't mind, this democracy issue. You know, one of the things you've got to keep in mind is that when the general public looks at these elections, you know, the way I look at it is it's always democracy when we have election day. It was democracy in 2016 when people were looking for the biggest middle finger they can find, and they found it. That's democracy. It's democracy when we think we're going to win in a landslide and everything tells us we are. The data says it. The early vote analysis says it. The polling says it. But guess what? We, the people, didn't say it. That's democracy. Um, So the one thing to keep in mind is that when you're in, in the weeds in politics, and as James just said, I mean, what he's really saying is about 200,000 people in this country decided every one of these Senate races in America. 48% of the, uh, of the folks are hard-set Republican. 48% are hard-set Democrat. We never had that kind of, that level of partisanship where the middle is almost gone. In 1976, about 38% of the general public, not leaners, Republican, leaners, Democrat, but pure independents, about 36%. Today, that number is nine. So when you're a political operative like I am, what I'm doing with that 9%, if you were the, if, if this was Wisconsin, you're the 9% right here. And I know what beer you drink, what car you drive, how many kids you have, how much money you make, whether your mortgage is right side up or upside down. I know every single thing about you, and I'm messaging to you each individually. And I've got this person knocking on your door, and Bob's knocking on your door, and we're checking if your absentee ballot came in. That's what's happening on the ground. So all of these things are happening up here, but underneath it all, the slicing and dicing of the electorate and the individual campaigning is going on and further isolates the population as well. So... I think that's all democracy, but in the end, I think the American people, in the end, they have the say, and, and that's what reminds us of that every two years. Yeah, by the way, I don't think you want to send James and me to <laughs> yeah. knock on their doors because <laughs> you won't get the outcome I you know. want. Uh, you both sound pretty optimistic. So let me ask this, and Reince, maybe you can start this time. What can we do about the threats of rising violence that we've seen from Charlottesville to January 6th to threats against the Supreme Court justice to the attack on Paul Pelosi. Can you assess the impact of social media on the accelerating polarization in our politics? Um, well, I, I think that it's very scary what's happening because I think for every message that you're giving your kids, I know this is about politics, I'll get to that in a second, you think that you're bugging your kids by saying you can't do that, you can't do that. Well, they're hearing times 30. For every one of your little reminders, there's 30 other reminders telling them the opposite thing. 
It's the same. It's happening in politics. I think we're going to get to media in a second, but let me just tell you this. There is no money in unity. There is only money in division. Dividing is profit. Getting you riled up and excited is profit. So if you, if you had an issue, let's just say I'm in Northern Virginia. I'm upset because the schools won't open. I'm upset because they're making the kids wear masks. And I got a problem with it. So I look on TikTok. I look on Instagram. I read an article. A few days later, I now I got six articles. Then I'm swiping 20 times. Then I'm swiping 50 times. It's like, wait a minute, the school board in Louisiana, the school board in Florida, it's out of control. And people, we're not just dividing on paid media. We're dividing at the micro level. And we're engaging in the public in walking down, I think, their worst instincts. So I don't know what to do about this, Bob, but I know that when people ask me, what are the things that are dividing America? One is there's no moderate districts anymore in America. Every, you know, in spite of all of our chatter, if we were all in Congress today or you were state representatives, in spite of it being the most vitriolic political time in modern history, at least modern history, we killed each other 100 years ago, 95% of you don't even have a race. It's a joke to you. Only 5% of you even have to raise a few dollars to make sure you get reelected. So between that, the media that where profit is division, and social media, we have the perfect storm, I think, that's creating the biggest problems in America. So, James, how do you react to that? I mean, are we headed for a second civil war of some kind? <laughs> no. And how do we restore basic norms? Well, you know, we started. I mean, we made a slight start in the election and sent a signal, and, and politicians kind of heard it. Uh, honestly, they reacted differently to 2022 than they did to 2020. Uh, the violence, uh, you know, you just have these people that all they do, if you go in the site, it, I have a little brother-in-law that does that. It's like, it is a great, it does a, you know, these people look normal. They'll pull the door open for you. If you have a heavy Bag. You're trying to get it out of the luggage compartment in an airplane. They will help you. They look totally normal. And the shit that comes out of their mouth, you go, oh, my God, man. What did, who told you that? Then he says, James, I do my own research. Oh, God. When somebody tells you that, stand by. Okay? Or when somebody says, I'm not saying, but I'm saying. I said, you better shut up because you're getting ready to say something. <laughs> but you have that. And, and I understand, COVID drove some people crazy. It almost drove me crazy. I don't know the answer to it. I, I obviously, you know, it's about opening schools. Well, the kid died horrible, the kid. But you ever look at the lunchroom lady? You think she's vulnerable? The school bus driver, the custodial workers, the school teachers? Yeah, I said, like a school teacher was two years from retirement. And she'd like, she'd, she'd work for me in the Shenandoah Valley, and she'd come by and cook after school for me. And she said, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to go. I got high blood pressure. I got diabetes. I'm two years away from retirement. And I, and I understand that. And I understand the same. And I understand people that say, we're really stunting the development of these children. But it, it, it ain't an easy issue. That's my problem. I see, I, I, they are actually two sides to it. I, does, I understand. Does, does the mainstream media make this easier to deal with? Or, or so, do they actually complicate it? The, the mainstream media 
because I hear this all the time. They actually have less power than they've ever had. Let me give you an example, and Bob and I remember this well. In 1967, Lyndon Johnson said, I've lost Walter Cronkite. I've lost the war. Well, if you lose Wolf Blitzer, you ain't lost shit. Who cares? <laughs> okay? And people go, because I, I like Wolf. I'm not, I, I would say the same thing about, about anybody else. But, but in 92, on our campaign plane, God, you, we had, it was packed with, with reporters. And they were, had a, we even had to have a trail plane. Now, there's probably 20 people because they don't have the power, they don't have the money, consolidation, everything. And so we just kind of say, say things. But what's happened is media consumption is not – 75 80 percent of the people use the media in a way that a, a drunk uses a lamppost. He's using it for support, not illumination. He's, not, he's just trying to stand up so people say, hey – if you give me $25 a month, I'll tell you everything that you want to hear. And I got an algorithm. I can just like <laughs> something that tells you with the voters. I know exactly how to market to you. I know exactly how to get the clicks. And the main thing I'm going to tell my brother-in-law is you've been right the whole time. And your brother-in-law is an idiot. And they'll do anything to get his $25 a month. And so if you go on some mainstream media site, you're not going to affect that many people. And I, I don't know that there is an answer to this because it, it, it's just really, it, it, it's really disheartening to say the least. And, you know, when, when people pay good money for, for bad information, that, that's bad for democracy. Right. Well, I think if you're dividing your rating and if you're rating, you're invited back. So, you know, yeah. that's, that's, that's kind of the way it is. You know, I remember running the RNC, and there'd always be books from other conservative commentators, and the books were never about, well, here are the 12 things the party's doing well. It'd always be like, here are the 10 things that, you know, make them suck, and here's what they should do to fix themselves, because if they don't, then we're going to lose our party. I mean, and that, that book sells, right? You can see it, you know, the people who leave the White House, right? The people who are selling books are the people that are dishing the most dirt. I mean, can you imagine working in the White House and you're dealing with, you know, issues like USMCA, you're dealing with issues involving Syria, and, and, uh, and you have to worry that when you're talking to someone, they're going to turn around and write a book and go sell copies. Because why? Because dividing sells. And it's a huge problem. I don't know how to fix it, but I do know it exists. And the other piece is last thing. It also speaks to what the individual members in the party think they need to do to be popular too. You know, 20 years ago, one other thing. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when you went to Washington, you became an expert, say, in armed services. And you, be, you became known in armed services, and you had this expertise that you developed, or whether you're an ag person or a commodities person. And then... When it was all said and done, it had this wonderful career, and Congressman Shrum is here to talk about what's happening in the world. And by the way, he's on the board of Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, and he has an expertise. Today, you just have to get on TV. You just have to get on TikTok. You just have to get clicks. 
The people who are raising the most money in both parties are people who have accomplished nothing when it comes to a career. So the, the, it's changed in the sense of what the career is or what, the, what, what these elected officials are doing and what it means to be you know, famous and elected. That whole dynamic has changed, and I think it's been for the worse. Oh, yeah, can I, I just sure. want to add something? So watch cable TV but, but, and see how many times somebody says, well, you're exactly right, Rachel. Or, Sean, I really agree with you. Or, Anderson, that's a very good point. All right? Because that's going to get you back on. Yep. All right? So it, it, <laughs> it's by nature a rigged deal. And, and <laughs> I, I just... I, I've talked about myself just lately, and people come up, hey, man, James, you know, boom, 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 what? And people inevitably say, you don't sound like everybody else. And we just come to the point where everybody agrees with anything any anchor asks them. And it's not a, it's a, I don't know, I'll change it. I mean, I'm not mad about it. I'm not anything. But I just think that the general public, and particularly young people, they're just looking for something different or honest or, or just anything. But, you know, people go on, they got three talking points. You know, they try to, and, and people see through that. I'm sorry. I think they just do. By the way, Chuck Todd had a poll a few weeks ago. I took a picture of it in my kitchen, and it said, what are the top threats to democracy? Number one was social media. Number two was paid cable. And it went on Republicans, Democrats, all, all the other suspects. But interesting that social media was like 93% by the American people is picked as the number one threats. Well, we're moving a little away from optimism, but let me say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, but we are getting say, along. You know, you know something like the Star Sacred Egyptian says, no one looks at the shoes. Guess who's the Republican? Guess who's the Democrat? <laughs> those one clothes. These no, are no, 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 wait a minute. I'm dressed like a Republican. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> Uh, but he's deceptive. Deceptive. But we're, we're, these are, he's deceptive. He's got right. nice jeans and wonderful shoes on. <laughs> so, as I said, we move a little away from the optimism, and there's a lot of doubt about institutions in this country. Take a look at this Gallup poll from July. When you look at the Gallup poll, uh, the, I think Congress is at the bottom, but no one's doing very well. Confidence in our institutions is draining away. And Congress at the bottom, doesn't that make it hard for Republicans and Democrats to get along and get things done? When, in fact, if they actually got along to a certain extent and got some things done, maybe confidence in the Congress would go up. Well, they actually have, they actually have been some pretty significant common ground yeah, we accomplishments. And we just can't sit here and, like, not say that they're not some positive things. Oh, let's think, go, go through them. Let's go through them. Right? The chip thing was common ground. Cures the infrastructure Act. Cures thing. The what? Cures Act. Yep. That was one. Okay. Uh, the marriage equality. Uh, sensing reform. Infrastructure. Yeah, it, infrastructure. So if you want to connect with people, tell them the truth. All right? There's, there's certainly insufficient. It's all of this, but it's not in Ukraine. I'm sorry, for for the most part, there's a lot of common ground there. See, don't just assume, because if you tell people everything is bad, it okay, 
most things are bad. I, I, we can argue whether most things are bad or half the things are bad, but it's not all bad. Is that why people think Congress is held, is that why they hold it in such disrepute? Because they're told things are bad there and aren't told about the good things that's hap- well, that are happening? I think happening? that it's remarkable how much hat does get done in Congress that you never hear about. Uh, another one where there's common ground that has united Americans, China. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, most of the Republicans agree on our sort of new sort of hawkish view of China, and most Democrats have in the past, and so now there's some agreement on China as being a, a real threat to the United States and the world. The one thing I'd say is one of the reasons why it is a challenge, so I do think that there's a lot more positive than negative as far as Republicans and Democrats working together. I don't, so, but, but the reality is, is that when I said before about how 95% of everyone in the House of Representatives is safe, it's because there's no real competitive districts anymore. So if James and I were best friends and we had a beer together every night and we lived in San Diego, here's the reality of where we are. His district goes that way and it's 80% Hispanic and 80% Democrat. My district goes that way and it's 80% white and 80% Republican. He's not coming to the chamber meeting on Wednesday. I'm not going to the Hispanic Church Festival on Sunday. He's talking about, well, what about the kids that are here through no fault of their own? I'm saying, well, what about putting up a 100-foot fence on the border? Same media market, same newspaper, same article. We're saying the exact opposite things, and we've got a better chance of getting reelected than waking up tomorrow. And you all sit around and say, well, why can't you guys just compromise? Well, what am I supposed to do? Turn my back on the 80% of my district that loves everything I'm saying? Is he supposed to do that too? All because of what? Bipartisanship? So the reality is the margins are thinner. The independents are smaller. The amount of districts in play are less. So fewer, here it is, fewer people in America are deciding the outcome for everybody. So how do we fix this? Okay. Well, I... So there wasn't something that happened in this election that I think is potentially explosive. I think this is so explosive, it could actually change American politics. All right, you said, James, come on, man, shit. Okay, hear me out. Proposition 211. What is that? What is that? What is that? (laughs) So citizens in Arizona decided that dark, secret money in politics was a existential threat to elections, to democracy, to confidence, to everything. So they organized and they put on a ballot a proposition that said anybody that comes in this state and spends more than $5,000 on politics has to disclose because they had dog money. Would come. You know what percent of the vote it got? 73. 73. It carried every county. And there was $16 billion that we know of that was spent in this cycle. And the corrosive effect of big money on politics and the corrosive effect it has on public attitudes toward politicians in Congress is just awful. And you're starting to see actual people saying, I've had enough of this shit. We're going to do something. And people could organize it. 
They could go in different states. They could put strip malls. They can do signatures. You can find out with lawyers. You can activate people. You can have Republicans and Democrats man it all the same. And by the way, you could insist on the 28th Amendment, and, and you can authorize that. Nothing in this Constitution shall prohibit the Congress from regulating money and politics. Right? I think that they would be, the, the real sense that people have is this is a rigged deal. Don't give me any of this crap about I can petition my government like anybody else. No one believes that because they shouldn't believe it. It's not true. It's just some garbage talking point. But what an individual can do is start organizing people and saying, I ain't waiting on them. We're going to go get the signatures. We're going to put it on the ballot. We're going to do the work. We'll do it ourselves. Good start. Right. So what would you do to fix the problem you're talking I, about? I would allow for, I, I, if I could, I would get rid of the anonymous corporate donations in politics, and I would allow for higher limits with full disclosure to parties and candidates. So if there's full disclosure, either unlimited or full discl- or, or limited, but high limits, fully disclosed, no corporate, no 501c3, c4. I've been talking about that for years. How about nonpartisan reapportionment? Um, I mean, it depends who's deciding what, what the rules are, right? I mean, it's always the problem. California, so, though, it kind of works. Yeah, I... I'm not an expert on what California is doing, but um, certainly unpacking districts to, I think, make seats a little bit more competitive would be great. But, you know, you know, these things are challenged by the courts all the time. And part of our problem is, is that in spite of people not liking the way that these lines get drawn, they are constitutional. I mean, they get brought up and down the federal courts every 10 years and they, they see the gamut of the judiciary. So trying to change something uh, that isn't, that it's constitutional is pretty tough to do in states that don't want to change. It's, it's only constitutional because the Supreme Court says it is. It's true. You can't well, tell me that Louisiana has a 33% black population and has one-sixth of the congressional delegation. That, if that, that's just blatant, that's blatantly in violation of 15th and I think. But uh, my opinion does not count. But, uh, but it Of course it does. Sense. That's why you're here. Yeah. Well, if I was a Supreme Court <laughs> justice, it would count. But I think it's insane. So before, I'm, and I'm going to ask you one other kind of surprise question, then we're going to turn to questions from the audience. I want to talk about the elephant and donkey in the room first, the apparent tensions in both parties. The Murdoch media, outlets from the New York Post to the Wall Street Journal to Fox News, along with a number of other Republican office holders seem to be turning away from former President Trump in favor of Florida's Governor DeSantis. I mean, you can see this on the screen. And by the way, there's one other headline here that I think is absolutely amazing. In the New York Post, look at that. That's the day before Trump was making the announcement. Florida man makes announcement. See page 26. I mean, that that's pretty amazing. At At the same time, some Democrats are talking about a different 2024 nominee than President Biden. How seriously do either of you take these developments, or are they just noise? You want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I ran, as you all know, the RNC in 2015, 15-person circus that went on and on and on. I happen to believe that primaries are good. 
I think that they make candidates stronger. I think it makes the party stronger. Where we are today, we're going to have a big primary in the Republican Party. I think that's a good thing. And whether that's, you know, a sea change from where we thought things were going to be before the midterm, maybe. I think before the midterm, we assumed that President Trump was going to run and maybe Ron DeSantis was going to run. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he'd wait because he's young and there isn't, doesn't want to get into a real battle. But I do think things have changed. And I think it'll be interesting for the party that's going to manage a potentially big Republican primary with President Trump still being at least initially the favorite. But we shall see whether Ron DeSantis can get make any ground and whether all the other members of the potential Republican primary are going to stay in or do they back out and get a one-on-one between President Trump and someone else? We'll see. James, most of the people who've Democrats who've talked here today have assumed that President Biden right. will run right. and that he and largely that he should run. Right. I don't I, think you agree with that. I, I, I'm going to make a statement that I I'm not going to say a hundred percent people in this room will agree with, but I think. But Bob just gave 99. I looked this morning. The current population in the United States, by best estimates, is now 333 million 426 thousand 875. You cannot tell me out of that many people we can't find somebody under 75 to run this country. I just don't believe it. I don't accept it. All right? And by the way, Speaker Pelosi, you know, it's like, okay, Hakeem, she's 82, Hakeem is 52. You got to let it go, dude. All right? I'm 78. All right? You know, when De Gaulle said he wasn't running for re-election, he said, oh, my God, Monsieur Presidente, what, what, what is France going to do with us? He said, the graveyards are full of indispensable people, right? And I, I, I know the, the, the form does that, but I think this country is just clamoring. Just, you know, Bill Clinton, people, oh, my God, we're going to have a president that didn't serve in World War II. Oh, Jesus, it's just going to be the end of days. Oh, my God, Obama, we're going to have a black president. Oh, my God, oh, what's the country going to do? Things go on, all right? They go on. I actually like, I've been knowing President Biden for a long time. He's done some remarkable things. I think he's been, make a case that he's going to have, maybe not successful four years, in some ways, maybe successful eight years, as a lot of presidents do. But you can't do this job in your 80s. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm 78. All right? And, And it just tells you that. And Trump is old and fat. And <laughs> stale, and I, we you just know, found you, the sound you, bite of the whole but, thing. But I'm just telling you, the people. Remember I said are, about cable news. And Pelosi, <laughs> I think I think what Nancy did today is gonna, it, it, you know, and I'm sure the president. It, let me tell you something. There is so much underlying pent up talent in the Democratic Party. You can't imagine it. It's it's staggeringly the political talent that we have gathering splinters on the bench. I mean, I want to get these people out there, let people take a look at them, evaluate them, see what they got to say. And I'm sure the president, and again, I'm sure the president has every intention of running for re-election, but, you know, he's going to have to make some, and let me make one more point. If you look at the Senate map, it is literally so hard for Democrats, you can't imagine. I'm just off the top of my head. 
Ohio is up, Montana is up, Pennsylvania, Nevada. I could go on and on. These senators are going to say, wait a minute, we, we got to have energy in the party. I mean, we're going to get the crap beat out of us. And I know a lot of them know that. Who's going to tell the president? That Senate map is challenging, to say the least. So you just said, who's going to tell the president? So here's my surprise question. And I'm going to ask a version of it first to Reince and then to you. Reince, as White House Chief of Staff, what was your best day in the White House and what was your worst day? (laughs) Well, I would say my first day was my best day. (laughs) 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 Not because everything went downhill after that. Oh, that was your last night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I... My first day, I remember when I, we came, we got done with the the parade, and I walked into the the West Wing and went up through the West Wing and up to the residence. And we had a kind of buffet dinner up on the second floor there, you know, the big dining room. And I was sitting down with a big long table with President Trump, and the president looked at me, and he said, "Do you want to go to the Oval?" I said, "Well, that'd be great. Let's go." So it was dark, and we. We left. We went down the back steps. It was all dark. We're following the Secret Service. And we went through the corridor. And in we walked to the Oval. And even though I'd been sort of, I guess, prominent in politics, but Obama was the president, so I wasn't ever going to be in the Oval Office. So I remember I walked in, and I went in. It was real quiet. It's like this. And I looked over at the president, and it was the first time I could see, like, the real weight. You know, because Trump's tough. You know, he's a force of nature, so you don't get to see him ever looking like. So he, he, I remember him standing like this. And I remember he was looking at it like, and he said, wow. And he looked at me, and he said, can you believe it? I said, no, Mr. President, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And I walked down to my office, you know, the chief of staff. Yeah, sure. And I, I walked in, and it's dark. There's nothing there. Computer screen. And there's a Bible verse that Dennis McDonough left me and a password for the computer. And that's it. That's how you start running the United States government. Just like that. There was no manuals, a couple of little meetings. That's it. You're running the show. Worst day. So I walked in to the Oval again. No, that wasn't my last day. But I walked into the Oval, and I saw a pretty gal, mid-30s, with her two little kids, dressed up beautiful, waiting in line for the president. And I was trying to figure out what was going on here. Why were these people? I couldn't, you know, I was lost track of the day. It was the day the president was going to give his joint speech to Congress. And I looked at this gal, looking at these kids fighting each other, like kind of goofing off little brother and sister. I said, wait a minute. This is the wife of the Navy SEAL that died in Yemen. And if you recall, there was a time, if you recall, that we were talking about an ISIS group that was making bombs and they were putting them in laptops. 
And they would take the bombs from the laptops, put it up against the window of a commercial jetliner at 33,000 feet to blow these planes out. So 10 days earlier, General Mattis, Tillerson, Chairman of Joint Chiefs, CIA, we had a dinner. And they came in and said, we need to get this ISIS group out of Yemen. There's going to be a moonless night. It's going to be in a few days. Here's what the mission is. We need sign-off to do it. And I remember looking at that, now going back to that day, and I remember looking at that wife. His name was Ryan Owens. And I remember looking at her and thinking that how easy it was for me. Now, it was unanimous. It was going to happen, okay? But when you personalize and you say how easy it was, to say, yeah, we need to do this. And then to look at those little kids, and they have no idea that dad's not coming back because dad's been going back. He's 35, six times. And just like that. And that moment is a moment that you realize that, you know, all the nonsense and the cable news and the, all the gossip, that's what it is. And that's, that's what governing is. And, it, and it, um, I, I think about him all the time. Yeah. James, worst day and best day in the Clinton campaign? Well, something to do with a cigar. Uh, <laughs> 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 I, you, I, I had a, a lot of good days. Uh, election day. Yeah, election day. But, but, you know, I really did. I mean, I still do. I mean, I literally worship President Clinton. And, uh, you know, we had some challenging moments, but. I just sometimes, I never was a government guy, but, you know, honestly, you pinch yourself. How in the hell did I end up here? Right? You know, you just, you, you sort of take stock of what's going on. And I, I, I don't know. I, you know, a lot of good days. That's all I can say. It was good. My father was a long-distance truck driver, and another truck crashed into him. We had just started this new phase of our relationship. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. We hadn't figured it all out, but we were making steps. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. So we're going to turn to questions from our audience, and here's how we're going to do this. We're going to alternate between questions from those of you here at USC and questions submitted by students from the Bush School at Texas A&M. Go ahead. Mr. Carville, oh, yes, sir. I am Dr. a James, big by the fan way. of you. Huh? <laughs> Mr. Carville's in the cemetery on North Street in Baton Rouge. He's been there since 1973, so he won't answer you, but I'm James. James? Um, so I have a question. So you're good at messaging. I've seen your message when you uh, worked with Harris Wofford in Pennsylvania right. about like so a worker being able to see a doctor. So I have a question about messaging. When it comes to messaging in a political campaign, is the messenger more important than the message? Because I feel like a message would carry more weight 
if it came from someone like a Midwestern governor or Roy Cooper versus a California governor like Newsom? First of all, Bob Trump and I worked on that campaign together. We started out with... with, with 67 to 18, we were losing. And and we won by quarter of it. It's a very sophisticated question. And, you know, as Marshall McLuhan, people have, like, thought of this forever and ever. It's hard to separate the messenger from the message, right? And there's just some people that, given it's that who they are, et cetera, et cetera, their communication skills, there are certain messages that fit them. And in that instance, that was a great message because Harris, no one who knew who he was, all right? And so he kind of, his introduction is, said, well, it doesn't make sense to me. A criminal is entitled to a lawyer, but a working person doesn't have any right to yeah. a doctor. And people say, I agree with you. Kind of, you know, we used to do spots in Baton Rouge to say, let me ask you something. If a 14-year-old can find a drug dealer, why can't the cops? Well, the truth of the matter is the drug dealer, <laughs> they're looking for the drug dealer, not the cops. But people, oh, yeah, that's right. God damn it. They, you know, they, the cops can't find him and a 14-year-old can find him. But these kind of pithy things, more so with someone new that forms for an introduction, makes a difference. And I'm glad you brought up the one about the Harris's campaign. Another thing I said was kind of paraphrase is that Pennsylvania was Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Alabama in the middle. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for it. It was a sophisticated question. Thank you. So here's a question from Michael, a master of public service and administration student, class of 2023 from Texas A&M. He says, President George W. Bush said, public service is a noble calling and we need men and women of character to believe in their communities and their states and in their country. What does this mean to you? And, Reince, I'll give it to you first. What does this mean to you, and how do you see it being applied today? Well, first of all, I agree with it. Um, I think for the most part, the people who are out there running in these competitive races across the country that we just went through, I think for the most part they're patriots and they love the country, and I think that we need more Republicans and Democrats to say that about each other. Uh, instead of the scenario that I outlined earlier about how we got these two polar opposites, which isn't really the case. I think we need more people that are willing to get involved. If you're a student out there at Texas A&M, I was a person who I came up through the ranks a different way. When I was a teenager, I was volunteering for the local party. I was going to events, I was putting up yard signs. I became a college Republican president a student body president. I was a volunteer. I never made money in politics ever until I finally won on the seventh ballot at a Republican National Committee election. You know, they couldn't decide on who they wanted to win, and I just lasted longer than everyone else. But the reality is, is that I think if that's your calling and you're out there and you're interested, the one thing I would tell you is that if that's your passion to pursue it. I was very fortunate. I know James is the same way, that as a young person, I had a passion about this. I loved it, and I pursued it. And even though I was a lawyer and I was a litigator, the passion that I had overtook it all, and it became a wonderful career, and it's been a good life. And so a lot of people say, well, you can't make money doing this, and don't do that. And, you know, you can't make money as a dancer or an artist or a politic, whatever. You can if it's your passion and you pursue it and you practice and you, and you harness that passion into something useful. So I know that's a little bit different, but for the kids out there, there's a lot of ways to get 
to the same place. Just go where you want to go and, and, and work hard. James, anything about this? Well, first of all, uh, I'll tell a friend at Texas A&M, I think we got a little scuffle scheduled uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving in, in College Station, and I, I look forward to watching that. Yes, and I, I agree with what uh, President Bush 41 said. I completely agree with what uh, Rich said. I always kind of liked him, and he became a, a, almost like a father figure to President Clinton. And I, I'd been to the Bush Library. I'd been invited there a couple of times, and Bob Gates was the president of Texas A&M. He said, all these alums were calling. James Carvel ever sets foot on this campus, I'll never give it another dollar, you know. It, 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 these charged things are not, they were, they were present back there. But I would tell this young man that you've got some real first-class advice. Uh, I don't like admitting this, but you go to a real first-class university that does real first-class things, and I'm sure you're going to have a great future. And they might be at LSU. Uh, I think we're a little happier with our coach than they are right now, <laughs> but I'll leave it at that. Next question uh, from yeah. USC. A question about message and messenger. Uh, James, you said that the Democrats should nominate somebody on the planet under 75. Who is that person or maybe the top two or three people that you think would be the most effective candidates for the Democrats? Who, Reince, do you think would be the toughest candidate to run against on the Democratic side if it's not? Joe Biden. And on the message itself, is what you said in 1990 still true? Is it still the economy, stupid, or is it something else? Well, that's a lot to unpack there. So (laughs) uh, I'll start with with the Democrats. You know, Vice President Harris, a successful person, she's a vice president. I hate doing this because I I always leave people out. Somebody, I'm told that that Newsom is more likely to run for the Senate than run for president. I have no idea. But he's the governor of the largest state. I don't think that's true. <laughs> he's obvious, huh? He obviously has to be taken seriously. I could go on and on about J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois. What about Big Gretch? I mean, she's going to be a real force in national politics. Gretchen Whitmer, the yeah. gov- governor uh, of Michigan. Uh, just, you know, blazingly successful campaign. Big, huge winner. You know, a, a, a woman of a lot of stature, substance, you name it. Gina Ramalto, the, the former governor of Rhode Island, is now Secretary of Commerce. Amy Klobuchar, who ran a very credible campaign for president. Pete Buttigieg, the current transportation secretary. Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina. There's only 10 more to go. But all of these these are really talented people. And my favorite would be Mitch Landry, the former New Orleans mayor, who I think is just one of the most staggering communicators I've ever seen. But the point is, there is a whole plethora of the word. There's a whole bucket load of really talented people on the Democratic bench. And I probably let some people out and I'll get people calling and screaming and you didn't mention my candidate's name and I apologize in advance. But uh, you got to let this, you got to let it percolate up. And remember, the first thing on that whiteboard was change versus more the same. And it also, very proud of this, the third thing on the whiteboard is don't forget health care. What's happened in American politics, if you listen to people, they don't separate health care from the economy. A lot of people in this room, you look at your 401k, which you'd rather not do, and then you look at your, your physical, your blood work. You, they're two different things. To a lot of people, it's the same thing. There's no distinction because they're just one sickness away from ruination. But, yes, of course, and you would have to have something like really staggering to not have the economy as a dynamite issue, say like 
a right to try to overthrow a, a duly certified election. Maybe that's a big enough event that interfered with this. But I, I still think it's always better in politics to try to relate to people's lives and understand their hopes and understand their struggles. You wanted me to handicap my sense of things. So obviously President Trump, Ron DeSantis, I think there's still a lane for Mike Pence. I don't know where that's going to go, but it's early. I agree with James. You just don't know where this is, where this is heading. As far as Democrats that I would be most concerned with, I mean, we always, just like Democrats in the room, you always worry that we're going to put in a real moderate centrist because you think, oh, boy, that would be. The, and we think the same thing, you know, a moderate, you know, the governor of Colorado or. Derek you know, Polis. You, 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 if the Democrats would nominate Jamie Dimon, we would think, oh, God, we can't beat Jamie Dimon. But the Democrats are not going to nominate the governor of Colorado or Jamie Dimon because they don't fit, you know, the way that the, the party works. I do think. And, and a lot of people in my party would disagree with me. They think, oh, no, California governor is never going to make it. I think Gavin Newsom is someone that would be, very, that would be dangerous I, I mean, for Republicans. I do think that. I mean, I, he'll moderate. I know most Republicans are like, oh, no, you can't. He can't get over all the, you know, the crazy California liberal stuff that goes on. But I think he would be a formidable Democrat out there. So, yeah, no, I think he's real. So, Let me just address this, a technical thing that you have to be aware. The way that Democrats nominate a president is our primaries have a, a portion. So if somebody gets 30%, then they get 30% of delegates. Somebody gets 23%, then they get 23 on down the line. The Republicans do winner-take-all. Mostly. And, mostly. And what that means is that if, if Trump retains the support of 40% of the Republicans, and he has four opponents. He gets all the delegates. He gets, he gets all the delegates. It's one of these little technical inside politics things, but it's actually significant. By the way, can I, can I just add to that? Do you remember in 2015, people were saying that we were going to have a brokered convention? And Ryan said, and I could say, it's not going to be a brokered convention because I know the rules. Right. And the rules are just not going to allow it. It was the Democrats that are gouging each other's eyes out until June and Bernie Sanders and, and Hillary and all the nonsense. So, yeah, that's it's a good just point. Brokered, As you're watching, these are like just not arcane. Right. This yeah. really matters. Yeah. Yeah. Bro- brokered conventions are unicorns. People talk about them. They never happen. Uh, okay, here's a question from yeah. Spencer, a political science Ph.D. student oh, at wow. the Bush School at Texas A&M. And James, Uh-oh. this goes to you. The Democrats' strategy of promoting extremely right-wing candidates in the Republican primaries seemed to pay off in the midterms. Lake, Mastriano, Baldick, we could go on and on, all lost. Are you worried Democrats are going to learn the wrong lesson from this? Well, first of all, when this came out, and, and the whole, oh my God, this is terrible, like all this. when I'm running a campaign, I got to tell you, I'm trying to do one thing. I'm trying to win it within the law. That's my job. All right. When you give James Carver as a campaign manager, you make a donation, you show up, you suffer in blokes, you walk precincts, you expect one thing out of me to try to win the election. And if I think that I can get me a better opponent and it's totally legal, God damn it, I'm going to do it. All right. And I defended these guys 
And I had to listen to all of this high end, oh, people fainting and what's going to happen to the fate. You're trying to win an election. All right. Period. End of story. And it, as it turned out, it worked. And I, I'm going to say, if, if I was given the designation of the Democratic campaign of the year, Josh Shapiro. All right. I barely know Josh Shapiro, but I mean, he got in at every level and he fought and kicked. All right. And, you know, he, he went all over Pennsylvania. He said, you want to talk about crime? I'm, let me tell you, I, he didn't shy away from anything. And I, he had a lot to do with Fetterman winning because he won by so much. There wasn't that many ticket splitters. But Josh Shapiro is, is a groin kicking, face smacking, James Carville kind of politician. I got to tell you that. Right <laughs> a lot of common ground here. Yeah, a lot of common ground. No, no okay. I'm good. Uh, next question from USC. Uh, James, I'd like to personally thank you for the approximately 500 emails I received uh, <laughs> in support of uh, Catherine in Nevada uh, for her election. But the question I have for all of you is in this time of dark money and super PACs and everything, what difference does our five dollars ten dollars hundred dollar uh, contribution what difference does that really make look up james carville the onion so the onion did a story that james james you got an email and says if you don't give him 25 dollars in the next 25 minutes he's going to blow himself up he has a suicide vest i sent out for Catherine, for val demings for sherry beasley for by uh, laura kelly I sent out more, and people come up to the airport and said, you know, I got an email from you, and I sent you a check, and you never thanked me. <laughs> I get that all the time. But for whatever reason, if they have an algorithm, and my name raises, and I'm fine. That's a totally, I'm glad you're a good Democrat. They got your name somewhere, all right? I'm I'll get $25 in the next 25 minutes, I'm going to pull the cord over a suicide vest. But the, the, the article is actually... By the way, fun. just so you all know something, when we do emails for small dollars, we'll put out 20 different emails to you, to millions of people, and in real time, depending on which name was getting more clicks, the other emails that weren't open would switch to the email that was getting more clicks. So if James's email was clicking more than some other person, then all the rest that haven't been open, would they would click over too. The reason you're getting so many James emails is because, number one, you give, and number two, you tend to click on his name. Right. Yeah. So you're going to keep getting James emails. So as soon as you start moving to Jimmy Carter, then you're going to start clicking on Jimmy Carter. And by the way, to your answer, the, the five and tens are making up more than 50% of the overall gross into the committees. And so it used to be that the major donors outraised the small stuff. The small stuff's outraising the majors. So the way that this is working now, the amount of money, it's, it's insane. I, I will move on, but Scott Fairchild, who was Catholic campaign manager, he called me. He said, James, I saw this in the polling, and what do you think of and I said, Scott, just ask me to sign the goddamn email, okay? You don't have to kiss my ass anymore. <laughs> uh, okay, here's a question for Reince from Brenna, a political science PhD candidate, again at the Bush School at Texas A&M. Uh, is it 
the Republican Party's responsibility to meet voters where they are on policy, abortion, climate change, social welfare, or is it the party's responsibility to lead based on conservative values? Well, I think it's a little of both. I mean, I hate to answer it that way, but I mean, I think every district in every state is different. I mean, a Republican in California in Orange County is not going to be the same you know, as a Republican in Midland, Texas. And that person's going to lead differently. I think constituents tend to force that, uh, you know, that answer depending on where this politician's at and where they're from. And I think all that works together. So I just don't think there's any one particular answer to this question. I think that everybody's different. I do think it's the responsibility of the Republican Party, though, slightly different answer, to go to communities that we don't represent. That means we have to be a long-time, all-the-time presence in black and Hispanic communities across this country. Because going back to what I described before, if you, if you break down congressional seats and you break down state houses and state senate seats, and if you're not representing serious, real Hispanic communities throughout California or throughout some parts of even Pennsylvania and Florida and, and Puerto Rican communities around Orlando, right? If you don't go there, and talk about your values, then who's going to do it? So we have a responsibility to do that. And I've always said that because if you don't, if you don't do that on a full-time basis, you're going to lose an atrophy across this country. So I think that is changing the party. That's what we did in 2013, and it hasn't stopped. And you have seen the Republican Party make pretty good gains in Hispanic and black communities across America. Now, the number one, last comment, the number one demographic moving to the Republican Party are black men under 40. Yeah, the Democrats have something. In, in, in 2020, I have worked for a group. We raised $100 million, and we spent it in 77 rural counties in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And we improved. In my theory was, and one of these that, you know, blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then, was that if you lost, instead of losing 81 to 19, you lost 76 to 24. You were changed sea level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, John and, and it actually worked. That's right. I, I mean, people, they, they, they did analysis, and those three states, we said, look, you carry these three, you're going to win, and everybody wants to, like, have you, and it's fine. For, it turn out in Milwaukee, it turn out in Detroit, it turn out in Philadelphia. And what we found, we do consumption studies. I want these PhD students to understand this. And we double-blind test. So we would run a message in one county in, in, in the Pennsylvania T and wouldn't run, and we'd, take, we'd poll. Then we'd run a message in one and not another. Then we'd come back and see again. So we, we actually knew what we were doing. The other what thing we that we found out is in these counties, the average age of a car was like 11 years. They're not on social media. They, on AM radio, which has been totally vacated by the Democrats. But we bought a slew of AM radio signs. And we did newspapers, things that looked like a newspaper. Crossword puzzles in it. They had everything. But it was obviously if any sophisticated person would read it and say, hey, this is a pro-democratic thing. Most people, when they get their mail, they read it. All right? I, I grew up real. Man, you got a letter. Jeez, I'm great. Look what we got here, you know. Almost glad to get a bill. So 
you know, and the Republicans do, and it's, it, and it's 100% true, these races are won sometimes on the margins. And the better people in this business find out what the most significant margin is. Because if you, in Georgia, instead of losing the black vote 94 to 6, you lose 88 to 12, shit, that's a lot. That's a lot. You have, between a governor's race and a Senate race in Wisconsin, raising over $200 million. So it's not California. It's a smaller market, right? $200 million trying to influence 50,000 people. That's what these races come down to. So you talk about a wedge issue. That's what he's talking about. If you have 50,000 people that even though we all have our strong opinions in this room, most of you have an opinion, you wouldn't be here. You like this stuff. But imagine after all that is spent, after all the insanity, you're still undecided. It's identifying what wedge issue is going to move that 50,000. And if you go into your point, if you go into Madison, Wisconsin, and you find out where those people are in abortion, where it's a liberal area, and you turn them out, it only takes you winning a few thousand more people. And all of a sudden, oh, well, Ron Johnson won by 24,000. Mandela Barnes lost. And the same thing, the governor flipped the other direction. That's what this comes down to. Well, John Fetterman did a brilliant job of going in to some of these red areas in Pennsylvania. He didn't win them. But he cut the margin. So I said to the party, after after we lost in the governor's race, we looked at Madison. We looked at Dane County. We got 21% of the vote. Republicans lost by 180,000 ballots. That's 30,000 worse than we've ever done before. And my view is, which gets to parties speaking to communities that they should be talking to, but sometimes they write them off because they think we can't win anyway. No party should ever accept having less than 30% of the vote in any county in America. If Republicans and Democrats took that as a, a basis rule, then you'd have both parties communicating to more Americans across okay. the country. One, we're going to try to squeeze in one more quick question because we're tight on time. Go, well, it's got to go be ahead. a good one. Hey, what's up, dude? You got it. <laughs> it's all on you. you. It's all you. It's your moment. Yes, of course, sir. Um, Professor, dis- permission to speak freely, Professor. <laughs> what did he say? He asked for my permission. Oh, no, to this speak isn't going to be good. Uh, I can no. Already. Yeah, you know, when I do a meeting sometimes, I said, uh, do y'all want me to speak frankly or just want me to kind of lollygag around here a little bit and tell you what you want to hear? Oh, okay. Well, okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Speak frankly. Uh, thank you, sir. This is mostly a question directed to Chairman Priebus. Uh-oh. As the head of the, as the chairman of the Republican National Convention between 2011 and 2017, during that time frame, we've seen a rapid increase in election interference from foreign nations, specifically with Prigozhin and Vladimir Putin and with their troll farms and so forth in the Russian Federation. I just wanted to know from your end, were you ever aware of the increasing risk of election interference from foreign countries? And going onwards from 2024 and beyond, what is your opinion regarding the use of social media by foreign nations, some hostile, some benef- some allied towards yeah. us and manipulating now our position process? withdrawn to keep talking? I don't, I personally don't, I mean, when all that went down, I had no idea what anyone was even talking about. But I do, but when I became White House Chief of Staff, you do get briefed on 
those things that do happen. It's not just elections. It's manipulating people, their opinions. It's getting engaged in conversations that are happening, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And it's sophisticated, too. By the way, parties use these tools all the time. We would have boards up in the RNC, and we could see what the most important conversations that were going on in Iowa. We could see what influencers were making that conversation move. And from a non, you know, you're talking about foreign interference, but from a pure influencing type campaign, we would engage in that. But as far as like foreign interference, what I know, no. I do know that I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and sat in front of FBI agents for hours on end on a, you know, BS investigation that had nothing to do with. Let me put it this way. Donald Trump had a hard time coordinating with the RNC, let alone the Russians, okay? So the only Russian thing I knew was Russian salad dressing. So, so look, I, I think a lot of things go on behind the scenes and get perpetrated by the press or just, they just weren't the case. The only thing I'd say about that, if I can take the privilege of making a comment, is he didn't have to coordinate with them. They could still do whatever they Oh Well, they, they could, but it turned, out, it turned out that that wasn't the case. But well, um, we'll see. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see. Can we so respectfully far, agree to disagree? Yeah. Look, that's all the time we have for questions, and I really apologize to you guys. I'd like to give you each a minute because you began on an optimistic note. So I want to give you each a minute to tell me what's your best hope for the durability of American democracy. My best hope is, was my last day, uh, meaning when I left the White House. And I looked at that glowing White House, which I think stands for freedom and opportunity and all the things that we love about the country. And I left that day, and I looked at that building, and the one thing that's very obvious is that there's nothing on the outside that tells you what president and what party's on the inside. So democracy endures. It's, it will be here, and if, we're, if, we, if we, we do our job and we work together and we do things like this where you can see, and I hope the students out there can see, that you can't have Republicans and Democrats, and Bob and I are, are good friends, and so are me and James, that don't agree with each other in a lot. We get right down to it. But we do care about each other, and we do think that we're all patriots together. And I think that view back at that White House and, and, and what, what it stood for should give you some inspiration. James, what's your best hope? Young people. You know, if you, if you look at data, there, there are two Americas. And there's a, a big is opinions of people over 45 and under 45. All right? And it, 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 it's really stunning. And I, I look at people here at Southern Cal, I look at people at A&M, Think of all of the other of these kinds of schools there are around the country where these young people are doing this and being involved and studying. And I, I just want to tell all of you that, you know, this is a fun business. You don't have to wear a hair shirt the whole time. You can be involved in politics and you can have a, a, a meaningful life. You can do it as an academic. You can do it as a practical person. You can do it as a candidate. You can do it as a volunteer. But we have to quit telling people that this is a god-awful business and there's no place for decent people or nice people because if decent people and nice people don't do it, then you're going to have, you know, really scummy criminal people doing this. 
So congratulations to all of you and all of your studies and your thought and what you do and, you know, God damn it, pitch in and get involved and I think we'll be okay. Okay, as I said at the outset, we're, we're deeply grateful to the Common Ground Committee and the partnership that made this event possible. And I want to invite the committee CEO, Bruce Bond, back to stage for a few final words. Bob, thank you guys. Uh, I will say this was probably one of the most unvarnished conversations we've ever had up here on stage. <laughs> and uh, it really was wonderful. And uh, I'd like to take this moment to thank our partners in this, the Dornsai Center for the Political Future, and particularly Cami Akhavan and uh, Nicole Pompilio. You guys did a great job. Thank you so much for that. We sure appreciate it. And I'd like to thank you guys for giving us a little hope and inspiration on some things. Really appreciated the fact that you are friends, and that came out, and there was some humor. We learned a ton, and it was really interesting for us to see that. We really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bob, Thank back you. to you. Okay. On, on, on behalf of the Center for the Political Future, I want to thank James and Reince and everybody here at USC, at the Bush School, and on Zoom for participating in our 2022 Warsaw Conference. Good night. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.